You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. And I'm Cass. And this is, well, this is something I've been looking forward to doing for, hey. I don't know, about the past six months. Has Be- it really been that long? I think it has, because I asked you about this. I think it was back in about March. Yeah, gosh, it must have been. I don't know, but you could very easily find out, because it was around like the third episode of um, uh, Binro Was Right. So. Oh, well, there you go. So we could get, like, a really accurate pinpoint on the time. But, I, I, yeah, it must be about six months now. Yeah, yeah. Because you were on strange. that. You were on that episode. Um, or one of the episodes early yeah, on. in A, a few of them. I can't... I, it's been a while, so I don't know. I can't really differentiate between um, which ones were which. But that was... Uh, that was the one with... Um, yeah, my dad and my two brothers, I think. And we just talked yeah, about yeah. the new Doctor. All the Peter Capaldi episodes that had just come out. That's right. And this is why, well, we'd better explain for the listeners who you are and why I've asked you on. Yeah. About six months ago, I did the Friends podcast, and the regular listeners who are listening to this will know what the Friends podcasts were, where what I did was I took people who'd been doing other podcasts, and I asked them, because it was the 10th anniversary of um, Doctor Who coming back, I asked them about their experiences of new Doctor Who, about their experience of podcasting, and just about Doctor Who in general. And obviously, most of the people I talked to were the same age as me, middle-aged Doctor Who fans. And right at the time, I was thinking it would be so much nicer if I could get somebody of a different generation to talk about it too. And that's when you turned up on your dad's (laughs) podcast. (laughs) What coincidence. Yeah. That's that's very strange. So it was perfect timing, and I just immediately thought, I've got to get in touch and try and get you on. So you better say, well, you're cast. You better say who your dad is and explain a little bit more about... Binro was right for yeah, yeah. people who don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not fully uh, in on what what it was completely about. But um, my my dad, who uh, hosts it with uh, his friend um, Beth, uh, he he just got the idea, I guess, after listening to all these Doctor Who podcasts to try and host his own one. He called it Binro was right after. I don't remember the name of the episode. It's but the Reboss operation. Yeah, it's like he's like um. I don't know what the word is, but for he's he's like the uh, he was like a counterpart yeah. of Galileo. Uh, yeah, visionary is what he was. Visionary, that's it. Yeah. And yeah. so your dad only had slightly small ideas about what the Binro was right podcast was yeah, going to yeah. be. I mean, if you listen to each one, they're all very very different in a in a approach. And the episodes with me in it are, are called side episodes because we didn't <laughs> we didn't know what we were going to do with them. And he just said, "Well, you know, it'd be interesting to have you talk about some of the Doctor Who stuff because you only talk about new Doctor Who." Yeah. And um, and that, that's that's really all it was. It was just a podcast that he did with his friend, and then I got introduced to a bit and have been on a few of them. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, it's sort of tailed off now. I don't know if if um if he plans on doing any more. But well, I, I know he's got one on the cards, but when he's actually going to get round to doing it, who can say? Yeah, I mean, there was something really weird about it, which I don't really want to get into. But okay, they're, yeah. they're sort of not really working on it. 
at the moment. I don't know. It's confusing. I, I, I don't. Yeah. See, this is what I mean. I don't know fully myself because I was well, just doing right. episodes. But, but, uh, but for people who want to look it out, the Binro was right podcast. Several, I think there's four episodes with you on. I might be wrong. Three or four, or something maybe. like that. Yeah. yeah, it's about three. Yeah, and of course it's your dad being disc grinder general, yeah. whatever his name is on Twitter. <laughs> I think of him as the disc grinder general. And Beth, who, who is Betsy Chevron, yeah. and actually, as podcasts go, I think the Ben Rowe was right podcast is one of the more interesting ones. <gasps> Oh, yeah, I think. Well, your dad and Betsy always come at it from a fairly intellectual perspective. But at the same time, they talk about, because this is the thing that gets me. A lot of people who come at things from an intellectual perspective will use very sort of academic terminology. Oh, yeah. But your dad and Betsy, it's just a conversation where they actually get into some really meaty stuff. So actually, it's really easy to listen to. And the episodes (laughs) that you were on as well. And this is what was intriguing about it. The episodes that you were on, you were getting into some quite meaty stuff too. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just this sort of stuff. Uh, I think because Peter Capaldi's one was on at the time and that was like uh, completely reinvigorated my interest in it after after um, uh, Matt Smith's one because that sort of tailed off for me and I, I sort of lost interest towards the end. But with Peter Capaldi, uh, completely reinvigorated it and... There was all just these ideas about it stewing just in the back of my mind. So uh, talking about it was just sort of, you know, getting it out, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Not very intellectual because uh, if you listen to any of it, it's uh, riddled with swear words, I think. <laughs> well, that's though, one uh, <laughs> thing we'll be trying to avoid on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm not I'm not liable to. It's just, <laughs> it's just my, yeah, I think my dad covers most of that for, for me and my two brothers. So yeah. <laughs> Well, let's but, let's go back to the start with you then. You would have been, I would guess, about five when Doctor Who came back with Christopher Eccleston. Oh gosh, I'm I'm not sure. How long ago was Christopher Eccleston? Well, it was been... ten and a half years. Yeah, so I was five because the first episode that I remember seeing, uh, like vividly, was the um, oh, I can never remember the names of them. It's the uh, the plastic men one. What are they called? Oh, it's the Autons. Yeah, was that the first one? That was the very first that one. That was yeah. the very first. Yeah, where where they introduced um, Rose and all that, and that was that was my first proper introduction to uh, Doctor Who through Christopher Eccleston, and he's he's still one of my favourite Doctors just because he's uh, he's my first, and if, if only for the sake of nostalgia, he's yeah, I think he's brilliant, uh, brilliant, and Peter Capaldi's definitely got a lot of callbacks to that kind of Doctor, like a sort of more um, dark, yeah, yeah, angry Doctor. It's brilliant. I love it. Um, but that, that was the first one I saw. It was this new, like, science fiction, uh, sort of investigative, I don't know if that's the word, investigative yeah, 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 mis- yeah. mystery uh, science fiction, which I just thought was fantastic. And with all this, like, sort of, I, I, I would say aliens, but a lot of the time it's more fantastical than, uh, fantastical than that. And particularly in that episode, they they were aliens, but the the monster that they revealed at the end was like this this sentient pool of lava or something oh, it's yeah absolutely fantastic but um yeah i just i got stuck with like uh really into the storytelling although i was five so i wouldn't i wouldn't have known i just i was just you know well that's really what i was going to ask at five do you follow the stories or do you no, just no. look at the pictures really <laughs> well i mean i still remember it vividly i don't know if that's because i watched it recently but i've got all these memories of um of the of the leather jacket and the yeah them going underground to find the the pool of lava it's it was obviously completely different uh, to me as a five-year-old, but looking back on it now, like um, the stuff that's left over in my memory is the, is the 
best parts of the episode. It sort of breaks it down into the into the most interesting stuff, and I still fondly remember. I want to watch it now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a great episode. I thoroughly enjoyed that episode. Yeah. I have to say. But the thing is, I can't remember many of the other Christopher Eccleston episodes. The ones that stick with me the most now, after having watched them at such a young age, would would be the the scariest and are the scariest episodes. So the I still remember it sometimes now as the uh, the empty child one. Yeah, absolutely horrified me as a kid. Um, I'm not I surprised. <laughs> I don't know if I if I should have been watching it. Although, not actually the 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 uh, scariest thing I can think of watching at the time. It's just something about the the idea of um, this virus that uh, turned you into one of them. Yeah, just by touch. It sort of really freaked me out and the. I don't know. There's something creepy about it being children doing it. There's always been that that uh, stylistic device where they make something much more creepy by just including children stuff in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Did, and there was. You... Oh, oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. No, it's all right. Carry on. I'm not. I'm not. I'm basically done. You go on. Oh, go on. I was only going to ask then. I don't even know if you'll remember this, but what I thought might be interesting would be: was it your father who said, "Right." There's this thing coming on called Doctor Who. We have to watch this together. Was it, or, or was it something that you just found randomly? I think that it was just I found it ran- like I wasn't supposed to be watching it because I think my dad uh, definitely was watching it because it was you know the, the comeback yeah. of Doctor Who after after so many years. But um, and I was just in the room and started watching it. And I went, oh, this is interesting, and then finished watching it and then kept watching it after that. I mean, it's definitely more of a, a family thing now. Like every time. A new episode of Doctor Who comes out. We all sit down and watch it because we're all we're all invested in it now after yeah. these different uh, new Doctor Who's. But I think at the time it was just um, like a new thing. Like he hadn't considered that I could get into it. And I guess that's because I, I don't know what the the difference is in audience uh, intention between old Doctor Who and new Doctor Who. But I would say new Doctor Who definitely seems to be a lot more in the mind of oh we're we're filming we're writing this for children to yeah. watch as well as. Um, uh, seasoned fans of the of the show, and then Old Doc Two. I don't know how that started. I think that started out as a family show, but I'm I'm not well, sure. It's, and it's it's always been well. The first sort of fifteen years of it always really were for children. Yeah, but they but it kind of it was it's, it to my mind it's a program for children that reaches out to the rest of the family oh, rather yeah. than being a family show that includes children in its audience. To my mind, the first fifteen years, first and foremost, were for children. Right, but okay. but Which you know, you'll have seen a few of those stories, and and even then, it's like uh, it's for children, but we don't mind scaring the hell out of them if we can. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I mean, particularly like the some of the Doctor Who villains I've seen come a few times. Like we were just talking about Entrap, uh, the ability to transfer their infection but via touch has been brought up many many times and i've been uh, flicking through like some really old doctor who books and one of the there's like a seaweed monster that i vaguely remember that had a similar ability crinoid Cry- crinoid oh there's <laughs> your dad just... he's turned up in the background <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that this is supposed to be exclusive to just us but uh... just put your finger <laughs> to your lips and tell him to be quiet <laughs> Cass, here's a big question for you then from that first year of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Did you know in advance what was going to ha- what was going to happen at the end of the 13th episode? And um, you know, so the regeneration I'm talking about. No, no I had no idea. That was that was very jarring, but I don't see this because it was so long ago. Cuz it was ago, so long ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I don't remember what my my actual reaction was to it. I think it was sort of like uh, my dad explained it to me uh, when he was regenerating. I was like, well, but why they can't have a different person play play the doctor? He's that, that's the doctor right there. Yeah. So, but then you know, David Tennant came and did all his stuff, and I remember that. Uh, it's like a sort of catharsis, that's like that kind of regeneration moment, because that was right at the end of Bad Wolf. So I thought he was going to die because he was like, oh, I have to make a sacrifice and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like, oh no, is this the end? I was, I was enjoying it so much, but he's like, no, he'll regenerate into the next one. And, um, I mean, from there it was just sort of like, I'm just going to keep watching it because it's, it's like David Tennant, when he was introduced, was absolutely fantastic. I think, I can't remember what it was. I think they crashed into, the Titanic or something. Titanic? Oh, that was later on. That was later on. The no, the, what, what was it then? I can't remember. The first one, they sort of the TARDIS crashes just into a housing estate where Rose lives. Right. It was the Christmas invasion with the uh, deadly Christmas trees. Oh yeah, that sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think it was just his his character, uh, which got me, and I was like, you know, I'll just keep watching it. My dad's uh, into it, and he says, yeah, this is an old thing. They regenerate the uh, the actors uh, get replaced, and. Uh, but I mean, I enjoyed the the new style that they took it in. Well, given, staying on the subject of regeneration, we'll come back to David Tennant in a moment. But yeah. staying on the subject of regeneration, by the time it came for David Tennant to regenerate, I mean, you were nearly twice as old then as you had been when Christopher yeah. Eccleston. So by this time, uh, have you seen any of the old Doctor Who's by this time? Um, I'm not sure. I remember watching some of the old ones uh, with my dad. Just because he was uh, revisiting them. Yeah, but right. I, see, I can't remember. I think we watched um, a really old Cyberman one, or it might have been Ice Warriors. I can't remember. There was some. No, I think it was a Cyberman one because there was something to do with all their limbs being replaced gradually by cybernetics. Yeah, and yeah. Eventually, they were completely robotic. But the like, it seemed completely different to me. I was, I was. I think there'd been um, a Christopher Eccleston Cyberman episode, so I was like. Well, there's an early, one of the early David Tennant ones with Cybermen. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe that was what it was then. Because we went back to revisit it at some point, and I was like, this is completely crazy that this is where they came from. Because looking, just looking at the old Cybermen, you can see, and compare them to the new ones, you can see where they've come from and that they're the same thing. But, like, it's so... The old ones are so much more creepy, in my opinion. But Oh, like, really? Yeah, yeah, like, really, like... Uh, I, I, it might have just been the, the black and uh, white and the fact that a lot of the time they were more obscured, but... It's, they were just a lot more scary to me, and my dad keeps telling me this story about how he was horrified to go to the toilet because there was this, <laughs> the, yeah, was, there was this thing about the side men coming up out of the toilets. So he was just in, in, in his youth when watching it, he couldn't go to the toilet. For he's probably quiet. looking at you horrified from the far end of the room now. <laughs> no, he's left now, so we're all right. I can say. Oh, okay. <laughs> did you? So when David Tennant came to regenerate. Did you could you remember the Christopher Eccleston regeneration? And when David Tennant regenerated into Matt Smith, were you sort of more prepared for it then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when David Tennant regenerated, it, it had been uh, it felt for some reason like a lot, lot longer. Maybe I don't actually know. I can't remember how how much longer David. I think David Tennant's was a lot longer than Christopher Eccleston's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I'm not sure by how much. But it just felt so much more uh, long. I was completely. Uh, you know, in with the character, and the last uh, episodes with him were the 
were the ones with the master, I think. Yeah, that's right, yeah. But by that time, Doctor Who had just become like a regular part of my life. So like we, uh, we would just watch it every, every time it came around. And it was just, um, like a family event at that point. So when he regenerated and went back and visited all the, um, past characters that he uh, met up with, it was really emotional. And I, and I knew what was going to happen because, because I remembered the regeneration because we'd been talking about it. Uh, but it was, it was so weird because it really feels like they're just, it, I mean, I, I understand that the regeneration is like um, the Doctor doesn't die; he becomes a new version of himself with a different yeah. personality. But to me, it was just like the, that Doctor is dead. Now there is a new one, like just a new person in with a TARDIS, with the same TARDIS and all that stuff. But it's well, a completely different person. Uh, the way I rationalise it is that one of the things they've said in some quotes somewhere is when you regenerate, every cell in your body dies to be replaced by a new cell. Right. The way I rationalise it then is that is a new person who just yeah. happens to have the memories of the person he was before. Yeah, exactly. That's what, that's what I was just thinking. And then even then, not in some cases, because Peter Capaldi seemed a bit... Yeah, uh, sometimes they forget things. Yeah, a and, bit confused by yeah. who he was and what was going on. Or, or it, like he started from a long time ago as the Doctor. I can't remember what it was like. like. There was that whole scene with him, like writing stuff down and scrolling it down and rediscovering himself, which was, which was really good. But then it sort of drives home the point of: is this the same person that we knew, or is it just a completely different person with the same powers and machines and stuff? Yeah. But, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I don't I know. know. I, I agree. I, 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 I always think of him as a different person, really. Yeah, a different but, person with some kind of with a sort of. You know, a, a tram line through his different lives that sort of ties them together as it is. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of the time, I think the reason that I stuck with uh, David Tennant, um, like immediately when he came around, was because one of those tether lines is, is the characters. Because you have the same character, you still have Rose there. And I was like, well, she's still there. And like, you're a new doctor, but I'm still going to hang around. So I guess I'll hang around for a bit then. And then I, you know, stayed with him because it's brilliant. <laughs> So, going back to 2005, Christopher Eccleston, and then obviously 2006 and so on, David Tennant, are your friends at school also watching Doctor Who? And are you talking about it when you get into school on a Monday? Do you remember? <laughs> Definitely. Uh, it's, it's sort of stopped now, which is, which is a shame. But um, when, we were, when we were a lot uh, younger, Christopher Eccleston came back and after... His, his bit and David Tennant came around. That was a regular thing for people to talk about. Like it, it was, it was just sort of this common knowledge that everyone had sort of underlying, uh, it, and it was, it was always a point of conversation. Like you could bring it up at any point and be like, Oh, did you see the latest episode of Doctor Who? It's, it's really surprising to me how much, um, how much just everyone knew about it. And especially with Matt Smith's new one, because everyone's, everyone got back into it because they're like, Oh, Doctor Who's changed and they're getting a new person out. He's the, he's the youngest one yet. Don't know if this will be good. Um, but that sort of showed how many people actually knew about it and, and watched it. And it was just like, well, everyone knew about it. So. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, actually. So a new doctor sort of revitalizes the sort of playground, as it were, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because people don't know what to expect. And it re I've, I've uh, sort of set on that now. It really does feel like that, that character just dies and then a new one emerges. It's always portrayed as a sacrifice as well, as far, well, I mean, yeah. for the ones that I can remember. And then, that's oddly like biblical with the yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, it's it is. It's very biblical, really. But um, oh yeah, I'd certainly <laughs> say so. I haven't really thought about that that much, but that's that is odd. Um, well, it's always the the very first one, the first Doctor into the second Doctor, 
it was literally the actor was leaving and they didn't know what to do to carry the series on. And of course, they'd not done regeneration before. So it wasn't like this idea that they already had. So they literally just changed them and didn't really say any more about it and never bothered to explain it. And then when the second one changed into the third one, um, the second one went back to Gallifrey to see the Time Lords. It wasn't called Gallifrey at the time. They didn't name it till later. But yeah. the Time Lords changed him. So it wasn't actually till the third one where you actually got it sort of set in stone that it was re- called regeneration. And yeah. it's what happens when your body dies out and gets reborn as a new one. And that third one was actually written by a writer who was very interested in Buddhism. Right, okay. So he wrote that third regeneration as a kind of a Buddhist parable sort of thing. And from then on, there's always been this... And I mean, of course there would be. It's called regeneration. It's about somebody dying and being reborn into a new body. Of course, it's always going to be about, uh, you know, religious things. And, And so religion's always been a thing about it. But, and you know, that's quite an ostentatious decision on the writer's behalves. But religion or not, it's still a brilliant concept in terms of how are you going to keep a program like this going, where it's not like a soap opera where you can just say, oh, such and such has moved out of the square or the road and such and such has moved in. In order to keep something like Doctor Who going, you know, there was either one or two things. They could either get different actors to replace the Doctor or they could just say right everybody's left the TARDIS and here's a new bunch <laughs> of people in the TARDIS which would have been silly <laughs> absolutely I mean it was a it was a completely brilliant idea and after having heard the history about it now that sounds I mean I guess that's the only way it could have happened like um they just ran out of uh, the the original actor wants to leave and they were like we'll just replace him with another one so we can keep it going but I think regeneration is, is the only reason that it's gone on uh, 50 yeah. 50-something years now. It's a huge number of years. Um, Mind you, there was a big break. So actually something like 35 or... But even so, it's still a hell of an achievement. Absolutely. The fact that it's it's, um, still around is is largely due to the fact that they could just replace the actors as a part of... um, as a a storytelling device, which they've turned it into very well done. And and the other thing, of course, every, every time you get a new actor... I mean, you know, I'll get your opinion on this. Every time you get a new actor... And from what you were saying in the playground about talking to your friends in the playground or wherever, it's almost like it's a new series which just has some of the format of the old series. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how how often the writers change. I know sometimes they change mid-season, but I don't. I mean, with old Doctor Who, I don't know if it was one writer per Doctor Who, but definitely the uh, the um, character and the way that stories were told seems to have changed for me. Uh, between Chris Fretz and David Tennant, Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi. I mean, less so between Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi, and that's because they're both by uh, Stephen Moffat. But I don't know if that's just me saying, oh yeah, this kind of storytelling is beca- is the same as that actor, this kind is the same as that actor, because, uh, you know, I was young and couldn't really differentiate between them. Or, yeah. if, they're, or if there actually were different writers. Um, well, Russell, Russell T. T. Davis, Davis yeah, yeah, did so. Eccleston and Tennant. It just seems so completely different to me. I don't know if it's if it's the character, but it's probably the actor as much as ever, yeah, anything. That it's it's very strange because um, I'm trying I've... to remember some of Christopher Eccleston uh, episodes, but they were they're a lot darker in my opinion, and maybe that was just because he was coming back after the um, after the war. So there was all this sort of 
Well, the first handful were quite light and quite funny. The first oh, sort yeah. of five. And then all of a sudden you get the Dalek episode, which is where it yeah. comes out about the time war and what happened in the time war. And that's when it gets dark. And obviously Eccleston's better known as an actor for his darker stuff. So I think that, so I think that latter half of that first series <laughs> sits better because that's Christopher Eccleston doing what people know him for as opposed to trying to do something else. Yeah, it might just be not. Uh, might just be me not remembering it very well, but um, <laughs> but, uh, but then Tennant comes along and he's he's quite breezy, David Tennant. I should think for because you would have been six, seven, eight when Tennant was a doctor. I should yeah, think for that. somebody of six, seven, eight years old, David Tennant was an absolute blast. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think where I where I started with him. The the most I can recall is is some of the early episodes with him and Rose and then it sort of jumps to the episodes with him and Martha and then him and Donna. Yeah. I remember I remember the, the latter two a lot better than I do the first one. I only remember uh, Rose mm, departing, getting separated by the, by the wall. Yeah, something like that. So a vague alternate yeah, dimension yeah. stuff that means they can still connect later if they need to. I don't know. Um, that's all I remember about him. Uh, do, you, do you remember at what point, or do you know even at what point you started to become aware of the actual stories and following the plots, as opposed to just sort of, oh, here's a bad guy who must be fought, and there's a doctor running around with a big cheesy grin on his face? <laughs> it was to do with the introduction of the Daleks for me. A lot of the time when I watched Doctor Who, it was just, like, I didn't, I didn't think about the overarching uh, storyline. It was just sort of, um, episodes uh, specific stuff so I think the best recollection I have of that is the Clockwork People episode um, oh yeah I don't remember exactly what happened now but I remember knowing what was going on in the story at the time um, <laughs> which well, that's is... pretty good though because that was in Tennant's first series so you'd have yeah, been yeah. six then I would have been very very young but I still remember that one and I don't I don't think I've watched it since because um, I'm try. I always try and remember quite when it was because you know my very earliest memories of Doctor Who are from the age of about four or five, and yeah. all I remember is pick you know images rather than stories, and I've and I've never been able to quite pinpoint where I was following the stories as opposed to just looking at the pictures and you know enjoying the Daleks and that. Oh, but absolutely. I think probably around six or seven is probably when it happens. I should think. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Like, um, thinking back, thinking back on it, I don't know at all when it was. I remember. I remember thinking I know what's going on here, but I don't know if that was unique to a specific episode when it started or, or a specific age or if it was towards the end of David Tennant's thing. I know yeah. I got into the overarching plot when uh, the darts came around in David Tennant's one. I th it's the, uh, well, they're in three or four with him. Yeah, the one I'm thinking of is the is the one where they're all in the um, like the weird... Dalek-shaped prison thing, and they all get released out into the sky. Oh, that's his first story. That's the one where Rose leaves, you know. That is, okay. Yeah. That's probably why I remember it uh, so well then. But um, after watching that one, we went back and watched Christopher Eccleston's Dalek one, which I had seen, but I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. I had no idea what it was. And then I think we watched uh, Planet Scarrow. Oh, is that right? Oh, Genesis of the Daleks, maybe. Yeah, that's what it's called. Um, which was very, very strange. And yeah. Even now, I only very vaguely remember that one. Something to do with radiation. So one half of the people there were like really normal and, and 
PS4, oh. whatever. And then the other half is Blimey, the Daleks. that's right back to 1963, the very that, first Dalek yeah, story, yeah. That would just be my dad being like, yeah, this is where they came from then. Yeah, that's your but, dad being quite cruel, actually. <laughs> but that was so long ago that I watched that. Um, well, it was such a long story. I'm surprised you're not still watching it now. Well, the, the thing is, it's sort of, it's, <laughs> I am still, it just sort of, when is the last time we saw them? Peter Capaldi, has he come across them? Oh yeah, his second episode was Daleks, wasn't it? The one where he goes inside the Dalek, Rusty. Yes, that was it, but that sort of disappointed me a bit, because, I mean, I, I, I always compare these to the old ones, because when I heard Peter Capaldi was coming out, I was like, alright, Doctor Who's coming back, uh, rewatch a bunch of Doctor Who episodes. So I started going through all the Christopher Eccleston one and David Tennant ones, and it's a bit unfair of me, but with even with the second episode, I was comparing that Dalek episode to the Christopher Eccleston one, which right, I think is yeah. probably my favourite uh, Dalek episode. Maybe even my favourite Christopher Eccleston episode, I don't know. But it, I love that one so much. And it was a sort of similar, oh, the Dalek might be good thing. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think the resolution didn't catch me that well. I can't, I can't even remember it. It was like they fixed the radiation leak... And the Dalek was evil again. I can't remember. How did yeah, they fix they, it? <laughs> yeah, they fixed the radiation leak and the Dalek was evil again. And then yeah, yeah. what they did, Clara went up into the Dalek's brain and there were inhibitors. And the inhibitors were stopping the Dalek from having empathy. And she unlocked right. the inhibitors so the Dalek was able to empathise. Oh, and then and it, it went became out good again. itself up. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Actually, so, I thought that was a really good idea. That, right? no, that really is a good that. idea. Because now I'm thinking about, do all the Daleks have that then? Does that mean? Well, yeah, yeah. This is kind of part a new part of the Dalek mythology is that all Daleks are fitted with inhibitors to stop them from having empathy but, for other creatures. But that's so weird because that means that at some point, like as a sort of pyramid scheme thing, there's got to be one group of people or group of Daleks at the top installing those kinds. Because you know that's that's technology that's been put onto their brains. So that means there's some yeah. kind of weird hierarchy inflicted. Well, that's so weird. Yeah, yeah, and this would be... Well, Davros, who created the Daleks, presumably introduced these inhibitors yeah, yeah. in the first place. This is one of those things. Every now and again, writers will come up with something. There'll be certain things in the series, like, and Daleks not having empathy is one of them. Yeah. And it just... You start off with a Dalek story, where the Daleks show no empathy whatsoever, and then for 50 years, you have dozens of Dalek stories where they have no empathy whatsoever. And to my mind, it actually takes a bit of a genius to turn around and say, well, hang on, we've been watching these Daleks for 50 years, and in all this time, they've never shown any empathy. Why is that? And then yeah. to actually sort of retroactively work out why the Daleks show no empathy and put it on screen, I think it's a really clever bit of storytelling, actually. Yeah, you're right. That actually, that is quite a good idea. Um, and that was that was Moffat, wasn't it? With, with just the second episode. Well, it was I Phil think... Ford as well, actually. Between the pair of them, they co-wrote Brilliant. that. I think it was probably Phil Ford's idea. I'm yeah. not sure. It might have been either one or the other. Uh, um, but the, it just, I mean, the the best part of that episode, in my opinion, was because uh, that was to do with just the introduction of Peter Capaldi. Was yeah, when he let someone die because like they got yeah they got targeted by the Daleks. Uh, defense system or whatever and yeah. immune system and he lied to them and told them that they were going to live so he could fault track them or something like that which i was like oh this is going to be this is going to be a good doctor um like, much more set on efficiency rather than actual uh you know just yeah, being, yeah. being good in quotation marks um which i love i love that kind of character um but it didn't 
Because what, what about the Dalek and Chris Fraxons one? Why did that one blow itself up? What happened there if it, if it had the inhibitors? Well, it just, well, this is the thing. I, well, obviously you can't go back and sort of wreck on it that, that much. Yeah, I think I'm just nitpicking, but like, I don't know why, why did it? Well, the the Dalek in the Christopher Eccleston one killed itself because it was the last of its kind. Is that, see, this is why I'm confused. What's, what's the timeline then? Does that mean we know where the Daleks start at? Oh no, what happened was the Daleks all got obliterated apart from that one Dalek, but, Because they'd been obliterated in the Time War, um, the Bunch ones of them escaped or something. Well, the ones who were, you know, the um, where you said the one with the Dalek sort of sort of hiding thing, the hand of uh, no, no, I can't remember what it's called now. The, it, the one with the Daleks like in device. Rose's last one, where there's four Daleks hiding in this box thing, and then it yeah. turns out there's thousands of them. Well, the ones that were escaped were in there, so nobody knew those existed. So obviously, when that opens up, then you've got Daleks again. Oh, flip. Okay. I thought it was like, I mean, that would have been interesting for me, but if, if you knew where the Daleks started, and then definitively that, that Dalek in the Chris Ferguson one was the last one, and any Daleks that you see after that point is just a result of, uh, what's he timey-wimey stuff, so they're not, those aren't the last Daleks. Eventually, they'll get <laughs> to the point where that's the last Dalek. Well, they but, did kill the Daleks off in 1967. Did they? I can't. See, yeah. This, this but... is the thing. My 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 dad was saying actually, there's a theory that those ones uh, on Scarrow were the last ones, and and all the other Daleks were. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. The truth is, the Daleks have been written by so many different people over the years. Nobody back then cared. So by the time <laughs> they'd just say, "Oh, you want a Dalek story? Let's write a Dalek story," and they didn't really care where it fit into any sort of overarching Dalek timeline. <laughs> so by the time somebody comes to sit down and actually think, "Well, how does the Dalek timeline works?" It's too late. It's yes. already messed up. <laughs> so you've just got to kind of take it all with a pinch of salt, really. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, I'm, me trying to sort it out isn't you know it's not going to change anything. It's no. just I like to have some sense of coherency. But I mean, the Daleks are just. They're like a figurehead of um, Doctor Who now, and they're, they're, they're this. You can't, you don't think of Doctor Who without thinking of the Daleks, because they're consistent. I mean, you've got even though the Doctor's the main uh, protagonist and, and all of his companions, you don't think of. I mean, personally, I don't think of the, uh, the Doctor, the Doctor, when someone says Doctor Who. I think of the Daleks because they're always, you know, it's always the Daleks, yeah. that sort of thing. But the Doctor can change and all that. But, the Doctor um, can change, but the Daleks never really do. Yeah, although you've got different types if you if you're being picky. But yeah, but that's this... that's irrelevant, really. <laughs> the I think the the last thing that I remember about the Daleks before I stopped, I mean, I started to go off of um, Doctor Who in general. But yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I've gotten back into it. But the, the last well, well, thing... I'll ask you about that in in a minute in more detail because <laughs> I think this is quite a common thing. So I think it's yeah. worth. But but go on. It was the Matt Smith episode with the, uh, I can't remember what it was. It's like the weird hierarchy of Daleks where you've got the red one, the white one, the yellow one, blue one. I can't remember what they're yeah. called. But you've got like the Supreme Dalek and then the, the Strategist Dalek and, you know, all through the different types of warfare. Um, I, I can't remember where it came. I think it was at the end of the World War Two one with Churchill and the That's armored... right. And it was Matt Smith's third episode. Was that so, only his third one? Yeah, so it's very early in Matt Smith's run. But that's, that's <laughs> the last thing that I remember of the of the, of the Daleks. Uh, I mean, after Peter Capaldi's thing. I don't... Well, what happened more. was Stephen Moffat, I think, 
I, I nobody knows whether this is actually true, but there there is a suspicion that because the Daleks are sort of part owned by the estate of the guy who'd originally created them back in the 1960s, oh, and the right. BBC have to pay a fee to use them. And okay. there were apparently there were a lot of discussions back in about 2004 whether the BBC would be able to even use the Daleks. And one of the things that people have said is that they came up with an arrangement with the estate of this writer who died whereby they could use the Daleks and they would pay X amount every time the Daleks appeared. As long as the Daleks appeared once in every calendar year and if they ever skipped a year, then they'd have to renegotiate and presumably the BBC would have to pay a lot more. So what happens is you get a Dalek story every single year. But that was with Russell T. Davis, and Russell T. Davis was happy to do that. Stephen Moffat, on the other hand, seems to prefer looking at things from a slightly different angle, if he can. So he'll have <laughs> like a Dalek story every other year, but on the years in between, when you have to have the Daleks there anyway, he seems to find a way of getting the Daleks in so that they're in a story where they're not really important in it. For instance, I don't know if you remember, you perhaps don't then, <laughs> In the second Matt Smith series, there was a story about River Song. Um, I might know it. What, what happened? It was called The Wedding of River Song. Matt Smith marries. Matt oh, Smith no. That's, marries. See, this is the, I'm really irritated. I need to go back and watch because that's the one like uh, bit that I. Was it two episodes? Or was it just, just one? one episode? One, just episode? one episode at the end of the series, yeah. Right. It, that's the one that I missed because there's all this. Um, was it to do? Is this the one where where there's all the... of time happening at once? Yeah, that was, I missed that one. I only saw the end of it, and I was like, "What's right. going on?" And then yeah. they kept referencing it later and and, and stuff. Cause she's got such a long overarching thing, and if you miss one episode, I mean, well, there's there's five there's five episodes in that year that kind of fit together to make one long story about River Song. Yeah. Which a lot of people hate, and which I think is absolutely wonderful. I think it's great. I just my. My, it's not. I don't have a problem with it. It's just my. I have a problem with myself missing it. Right. It, and yeah. I, I couldn't keep up. But sorry, you were saying about. Oh, I was only going to say in that very last episode, there's a tiny thirty-second Dalek cameo, and that's mm. the Daleks done for that year. But like <laughs> I say, gets them onto screen during twenty twenty eleven. It would have been yeah twenty eleven. Gets them onto screen, so they made their appearance in twenty eleven. So that. So that's um that's an official thing then that they had to. Well, nobody knows if it's right or not, but the fact oh, right. that they do keep turning up, and when they don't have a story, they do turn up in a cameo somewhere, seems to suggest maybe it is true. Yeah. But then it's my theory that it's better to have the Daleks once a year or once every other year anyway, because, you know, every year there's a new six-year-old, or a new X amount of thousands of six-year-olds, watching it for the very first time, and they all want their first Dalek story, you know? That's true. Yeah, I mean, um, when I was when I talk about it with my friends, or when I was ages ago, there's people suggested stuff like, "Oh, the Daleks. The reason they do that so often um, is because it's just an easy thing to fall back on." And I was like, "Well, it's not an easy thing to fall back on. It's a reminder that there's a constant antagonist to the show." Yeah. And, and I, I've always felt like it's just good to have that. And actually, far like from, a, far so from being easy to come up with new stories for the same. Alien, year after year after year, is probably more difficult than yeah. coming up with a story for somebody else. Absolutely, because, I mean, you've got to go through all the history of them and be like, can I say that about the Daleks, or has that already been contradicted in, mm. in this episode? 
Um, and fi- and the, and then don't really have an awful lot of personality. So trying to find new things for them to do is like, you yeah. know, they just turn up, shoot people, and <laughs> there's your story. Not much of a story then. Were the Daleks like a favourite then for you? Yeah, I think so. But just because so many of the stories are about them, maybe. Uh, I can't think of another favourite. Do you remember the Weeping Angels when they first turned out? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't like them that much. That might have just been a, a, a storytelling thing for me, though. Although I think that was a really well told story, if I'm remembering correctly, because they had yeah. they told it through the perspective of a different character who only met Doctor Who. Doctor, I can't believe I did that. Only met the Doctor. No, and... I think it's fine. That's what people call him. <laughs> it's uh, my mistake. That's what I call him. I call him Doctor Who. I like calling him that. Why? Why is why his is on the name screen? Of the show, Doctor his, Who. His on screen name is the Doctor. Yeah. Off screen, everybody calls Everyone him calls Doctor, him Doctor Who. Who. That's exactly. fine. That's yeah. a language thing. Like the, exactly. the most the most prevalent version of a phrase that emerges is the correct one just because the most people say it or something. There's like a rule or something exactly. like that. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. That's exactly <laughs> right. But um, why is it called Doctor Who? Why is... Well, I, can't, I don't know where that came from. I remember something about maybe originally they were thinking of it being educational, like a history thing. Like he travels back in time and does yeah, history yeah. stuff. But then they got away from that and were like, well, let's just go to space and do cool stuff. And I'm very happy they did that. <laughs> Actually, but, um, I, I quite like his uh, little details into history. I've always enjoyed those. But, think, you know, you couldn't have one without the other. It'd yeah. be very dull if it was just one thing all the time. I don't know. See, this thing, because I don't know anything about how he, what he would do um, in the old Doctor Who's, what, where he would travel, whether he would go into future and investigate aliens and stuff. Well, they'd alternate between the two. There'd be one in the right. future and then one in the past. When he, when he went into the past, would the past be inf- like inflicted with all this sci-fi stuff anyway? Because with all the Doctor no, Who's that I've seen in the but, moment... The, the very first Doctor, they literally, they were being educational. They'd send him back into the past. There'd be no aliens. There'd be no sci-fi. They'd just meet somebody like Robespierre or uh, Marco Polo. And then <laughs> they'd teach the kids watching at home something about Robespierre or Marco Polo. And then six weeks later, you'd get to the end of that story. And then the Daleks would come back or whatever. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, then. Because, I mean, with all the Doctor Who's we have at the, at the moment, they go back into the past, and then they're like, wait a minute, something's not right here, and there's usually some weird alien shenanigans going on disrupting, exactly, yeah. disrupting time. Which never makes sense to me, because... I don't know, whatever. <laughs> no, no, that's a fair point. It doesn't really make sense. Surely if all that stuff's going on, then the present day would already be different before he goes back into the past to see it, because if that stuff's different in the past, then that's going to change the future. I don't know. Yes. I'm... No, well, this is one of the <laughs> this is one of the contradictions in telling stories where time travel's possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all it's these just... different films like Back to the Future and you know a, a, a dozen other different films. They all treat it in different ways because nobody knows what would happen, so nobody can really say, can they? Absolutely. I mean, I'm really interested in all this that sort of paradox stuff. There's, I think, one of the uh, great references to the Futurama Grandfather episode. Um, but what was I saying? <laughs> yeah, I won't, I won't really get into that, but um, I, I love all that paradox sort of stuff. And I think it's just an, it's just an unnecessary contradiction that I'm making uh, to say it doesn't make sense that they can go back into the back in time and do all that stuff because the present would have been changed. It's just, you know, it well, stops two, it's about time travel. There are, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, there and, are two two stories in all the 26 series 
of the old Doctor Who, there are only two stories that actually deal with that up front. In fact, there's only really one, <laughs> which is funnily enough a Dalek story from back in 1972. Yeah. And the rest of the time, you just have to kind of ignore it and get on with it because otherwise you'd be tying yourself up in knots yeah, all the time. That's fine. I mean, the only reason I would get into that stuff is if by doing it, it revealed something new about Doctor Who. Like, wait a minute, if if he was doing that, then this means that this has to be that way. Oh, so that's a clue to that. But, you know, that mm. it's just me being... <laughs> Oh, no, no, but that's good. Um, Like with the Daleks and their inhibitors. If by travelling in time you learn something new about the programme that actually has been sort of a fundamental thing but that nobody's ever thought about for 50 years, that's a great way to tell stories if you can find a way to do it. I mean, that's that's, that's like a completely unique uh, unique idea that they could... Because, I mean, you'd think the Doctor, in all his years of having fought the Daleks, would eventually have, like you know, dissected one or, or investigated into its actual anatomy or stuff. Although I, I don't know if that goes against his his morals. I don't see why it would. He seems to ignore them for the Daleks. But, yeah. but, but you know, if that was the first instance of him actually figuring out, oh, they've got um, inhibitors, then the interesting thing in that would be, does that mean they always had inhibitors or is that a new thing to this new generation of Daleks or, you know, two generations ago? That's that's why I would uh, look into it. But with, with other stuff like, oh, that doesn't work, it's just... You know, it's a 50-year-long show or whatever. If, yeah, if, it yeah. was, if it was a film, bring up that point, but that's because the film is contained within only two hours. It doesn't need to concern itself with logic. 50 logic years of from, logic. Yeah, classes, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so I just, you know, it's easy to just ignore it. And, and I don't well, mind ignoring it either. I think there's no need to get into that sort of stuff. Um, well, on the other hand, not the inhibitors necessarily, but a bunch of the other stuff you're talking about, if what I hear is right, a lot of that's going to get addressed in the first episode of the series coming up. What sort of stuff? All this sort of time travel stuff and sort of where do the Daleks come from and what happens when you uh, try and change the past, all this kind of stuff. Right, okay. I think that's what the first story of the new series is going to be about. I've probably just spoiled it for a few people. (laughs) That's that's fine. It's just just an idea. That's that's very interesting. I mean, from a storytelling perspective, I think it would be interesting if there was an instance of, although I think it has actually been done, I vaguely remember something about it, if there was an instance of the Doctor travelling between a point in the past and a point in the future, or, you know, future and present, and and he keeps travelling between the two because something changing in, in the previous one changes something in the future one, so he has to go into the past, put like a, a sonic screwdriver there, then go yeah. into the future and pick it up, you know. Even though Sonic Screwdriver is Deus Ex. Well, no, that could be a... (laughs) No, it's not a Deus Ex Machina. Do you know what I say about the Sonic Screwdriver? What'd you say? (laughs) Because, I mean, everybody else moans about the Sonic Screwdriver. Sonic Screwdriver is a tool. It's not a Deus Ex Machina. If you solve the plot with the Sonic Screwdriver, then what's happening is you're not using the Sonic Screwdriver as the solution to the plot. The solution to the plot is the thing that you have to find out that you need to do that you use uh, the sonic screwdriver to do. That's true. That's completely true, actually, yeah. I mean, it's the sort of... I think it's it's just confusing, because if, if he... It's like if the Doctor goes up and he's like, with my sonic screwdriver, I'm going to operate this machine and solve... Yeah, know, yeah. ...complete the plot. And then people are like, well, that's... that's You know, he can't do that because he's just using the sonic screwdriver. It's like, well, he's using the sonic screwdriver to use the machine, which yes. he would... Yeah. It's so exactly it's like, it. It's the machine. Which it's, is why, I, I mean, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have called it Deus Ex Machina. I think that's just a 
can't think there, there is a lot of Deus Ex Machina in Doctor Who, and especially in the new series, 45-minute episodes, sometimes you just can't help it. The best way to tell a story... You know, I'm going to do a whole podcast on this Great. sometime <laughs> next year because I think it's worth going into in, in more yeah. detail. But a Deus Ex Machina is when you throw Oops. something completely random in. Oh, that's and, true. It, and, it's... Mm, well, the, here's the thing. Rose, at the end of... You probably don't remember how specifically it ends, but in that yeah. first Christopher Eccleston series, Rose turns into this godlike creature oh. who destroys the Daleks with gold dust. Absolutely, yeah. I mean... But, but, I, but what I would say about that is that's a deus ex machina in terms of the plot mechanics, but in terms of the character mechanics, that's where her character was always going. So well, it's not so much a deus ex machina for the character. Okay, I see what you're saying. I don't, th- I don't think it is. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it is much of. De- I don't think it's a Deus Ex Machina at all, actually, because. Okay, so the original phrase. What does it mean? It means God in the machine. Hmm. Right. So that's. Well, a I prefer to say it. God shows his hand. <laughs> yeah. Because what uh, basically and... you're doing is saying that God is intervening. Yeah, absolutely. There's this um, <clears throat> uh, like if I'm if I was going to reference another long-running show that I know nothing about except for <laughs> a few. I mean, the stuff that I'm going to say is um, Star Trek, right? So the character... Uh, right, character I know nothing about Star Trek either, so you're ahead fine. of me on this one. I'm not, I'm not going to... I don't know anything about it except for the character Q. Um, he's basically a godlike figure who would emerge at times of you know problems in Star Trek and just wave his hand and everything would be fixed. Really? Um, wow. Sort of. I think, don't quote me on that because that's wrong, but, but that's, that's the idea of... <laughs> that might be wow. wrong. But that's the idea of, um, that's where it originally came from, I think, in, like, uh, Greek plays. It would, Zeus would come down from the top of the yeah. uh, machine and just say, everything is solved now because I'm God and I favour you. Exactly, um, yeah. And that's not at all what uh, the end of Bad Wolf was with Rose, because there was that whole thing of her leading up to um, opening the TARDIS or whatever, and... I can't remember what it was, but there was definitely yeah, some... Yeah. There was some she there basically was some... swallows the time vortex and uses yeah. the time vortex to destroy them. I mean, and the... of course, that's kind of what Doctor Who's about, so you're kind of using the tools of the series. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the difficulty would be people would say that's Deus Ex Machina because she gets godlike powers, but then that doesn't mean it's Deus Ex Machina. The, the god intervening thing is that... It has to intervene and fix the problems rather than she worked to gain that power. Like, it's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you would need to use a lot of power to get rid of those Daleks anyway. The fact that she used the TARDIS and got godlike powers from that doesn't mean it's God's intervening. It just means that... She's used the tools at her hand, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to have to bring you back for this Deus Ex Machina (laughs) episode, aren't I? Brilliant, that would be great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think the thing with the Sonic Screwdriver, getting back to that point, is that... I preferred it when it was just an, um, a, con- a convenience thing. So something that's always confused me is why is the Doctor the one who fixes the problems? And there are organisations like Torchwood and you know Sarah Jane or... or Unit as well is another Unit one. Unit yeah, is yeah. a good one, yeah. Solving problems and fixing um, extraterrestrial whatevers. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, why is the Doctor the only one that can do that? And then a good reason is he's got the technology to do it, such as the Sonic Screwdriver. If he didn't have that then he wouldn't be able to get into this place. Exactly. So it's not so much of a plot device, but as a, like a limitation saying, therefore the Doctor is the only one that could do be the one to fix this at that time. And there's also like a philosophical thing as well, in that, um, you know, uh, 
in in terms of businesses and unions if businesses and unions can't come to an agreement they'll bring in an outside mediator and the me the mediator has objectivity because he's not affiliated to either the business or the union so he comes <laughs> from an objective position from the outside can see and understand the problem better than anybody who's engaged in the problem and therefore can see the solution the doctor is like uh, this outside being, this objective being who comes in, sees humanity on one side, sees the aliens on the other side, and obviously in terms of Doctor Who, it's good versus evil, but he's the one who comes in from outside, has the objectivity to see the solution. That's true. That's a really good point. I think, like, to go, I'm going to have to go through Doctor Who now and write down every instance of the Sonic Screwdriver because that to me suggests that there's, <laughs> just because I'm like really picky over that sort of thing and obsessive, but there's like, that's set, that suggests that there's an element of the Sonic Screwdriver representing objectivity in solving yeah, solutions. And then be. there are, there are so many good instances of other companions where they have to like get the Sonic Screwdriver and then use it on stuff and that's like, I don't know, I'm probably know, digging too deep into it, but that sort of stuff just interests me. Well, two things about the sonic screwdriver is, one, the scriptwriter only writes in a scene where the sonic screwdriver gets used, it only writes in a problem that you need the sonic screwdriver to fix if he's happy to have one of the characters using the sonic screwdriver to fix it, otherwise he just writes in a different problem where you don't need it. That's true, yeah. And then the other thing is, the sonic screwdriver is basically just the Doctor's version of the multifunctional iPhone. <laughs> it's like a future like all the time lords have got one yeah, yeah. It, it's got all these different functions then you just it's handy it's in your pocket it's powered up you use right. it for what you need it for when doesn't you need work. it doesn't yeah. work on wood no <laughs> can shoot fire i think at one point did that happen no no it killed a bunch of cybermen with light and they left it that was a christopher x episode where they left it on a cliffhanger after Cybermen. Oh, well, this was David Cybermen Tennant. This was David Tennant. No, first year. was it David Tennant? Yeah, yeah. Oh, flip! I'm miss I'm messing that up. I can't mm. remember what it was. But it's like um, it was a two episode. It was Rise of the Cybermen and Age of Steel. It was set on the parallel planet Earth with the um what? airships. Do you remember? Oh, vaguely, yeah. And there's yeah. the Cyberman with the with the brain sticking out. Yeah. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. But that one, he was like, oh yeah, the Sonic Screwdriver's got a new function, that means that I can destroy all 20 Cybermen who would have been a threat to us on the last episode on the cliffhanger, think, but they actually aren't. I think what he does, oh gosh, I can't remember now. There might have been a good does, reason for it. He has like a battery or something. and It he, needs to charge, I remember that. And he, he discharges the battery, he uses the Sonic Screwdriver to discharge the battery on the Cybermen or something. Yeah, it was, something it was, just, like that. It was yeah. very convenient, like he... Yeah, he did it, and then it it like hit one Cyberman and then bounced along to each Cyberman perfectly because you know they're electronic or magnetic, magnetic or something. Um, and that's of course how it works. That's fine. I mean, I would have been more satisfied if they just run away for a bit and then. Yeah, I don't know. It's fine. Well, in the end, I suppose they got rid of those Cybermen in that line, but in the end, they did run away from the other Cybermen until they were ready to come back and stop them. That's true. I mean. But then Russell T. Davis was always very good at writing stories for his characters, but it, to my mind, I think Russell T. Davis is less good at writing the sort of science-y stuff and the sort of plot mechanic stuff. Really? Yeah, I think so, because it's Russell T. Davis does a lot more of that sort of stuff, and with one fell swoop, the sonic screwdriver discharged the battery. Oh, yeah. Stephen Moffat's more of the guy who, to get out of 
a cliffhanger will oh the gravity globes at the end of uh, the first two-parter in Matt Smith's first series where they need they're surrounded by weeping angels and there's a spaceship up in the sky and we've already seen this thing called the gravity globe so the doctor fires off the gravity globe and all of a sudden everybody's upside down and they're in the spaceship it sounds Brilliant, ridiculous man. to tell you about it now. But to <laughs> no, actually, I, I get what you mean, yeah. But but to actually see it happen, it's quite cleverly put together, where it gives you all the clues as to what they're going to do. Yeah, you're right. See, this is the thing, and it might just be because I've seen way too much Doctor Who or way too much Stephen Moffat that that's starting to irritate me now. But I can't think of as as a, in a, as a narrative kind of thing. I don't see any other like better way of doing that because the best thing is where they give you all the hints. Yeah. Of, of, of the thing, and then something comes back from the beginning that they use later on. And yeah. I'm just trying to think of a, of a good example for it. I mean, a frustrating thing is where it's like a, a games thing. If you've got a puzzle and you can't solve it, and then you do something which unlocks the final piece, and then yeah. suddenly it's all obvious, that's frustrating because you're not solving the puzzle in the first instance. You're looking at something that's impossible to do until you get to the next part. Exactly. But with yeah. Stephen Moffat, it's more sort of, you've got everything, figure it out, <laughs> and then you realise, oh, I just have to use that bit, which is more satisfying in, in you know, puzzle terms. And that's I, do, of... I do think Stephen Moffat's a much more satisfying intellectual writer than Russell T. Davis. Obviously, Russell T. Davis is the more satisfying emotional writer. Yeah. But then it's a trade-off. You can't, you know, not many writers are capable of balancing both things so well that, you know, you don't notice one or the other. Most writers will tend to have an area of expertise or maybe not even an area of expertise, maybe just something that they enjoy writing more. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know the, the uh, inside mechanics of how the, how the writing process goes for, for that kind of TV show because it's... You know, it's a very unique way of having to write something that sort of, you do an episode, everything that episode for Stephen Moffat would have to come uh, back and be important later on if it was to the uh, main plot. So like River Song, you know, yeah, he, he probably planned out everything that was going to happen with her uh, from the first episode that we saw her. And I mean, he must have because there's, you know, she had the sonic screwdriver in the, in the book or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are all those clues way back in David Tennant's fourth series that don't pay off until Matt Smith's second series four years later. Oh, my God, yeah. Just thinking about that well, now. three how... years later, sorry, not four. But, yeah, yeah, three but yeah, years how, later. How separate that is. That's that's crazy to me. Um, see, and, yeah, is... people say about him, oh, Stephen Moffat makes it up as he goes along. Well, this it's is a thing... ridiculous accusation. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't think he could have made that up because things are too specific there, but there is a slim chance that he could have just put in things that... Um, there must well, be this a word is, for like, yeah, this is, what T. Da- this is what Russell T. Davies used to do. He used to throw things into his stories and say, yeah. right, I don't know whether I'll use that or not, but maybe further on down the line I'll pick it up and get to use it. Yeah. And he does that quite often. The Master, the ring at the end of the first Master story, the Master's destroyed. And then he says, oh, let's throw in a shot where we see somebody st- um, picking up the ring. And then Three, two or three years later, the master comes back because the DNA was on the ring and they were able to reconfigure the master. Oh. It's just crazy stuff, but that's Russell T. Davis for you. I mean, he writes great Doctor Who, but some of it's just ridiculously crazy. But Stephen Moffat, on the other hand, will throw in something like the telephone call that Clara picks up, telling her to meet the doctor, telling her to ring oh, yeah. the doctor, and then 
three years later or two and a half years later, you find out who actually made that or gave her that advice to make that telephone call. Yeah, that's you, true. That's and brilliant. you know that Stephen Moffat has actually plotted that out. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's quite good writing. It just... Sometimes it, it gets on my nerves when... It can it come can, across as a bit smug. Not... Definitely that, but also... Like, across episodes, this doesn't happen because there's no way of being able to know what's going to happen. All that River Song was, you know, so-and-so... Can I say that? I don't, I don't know if, if that's spoilers anymore. It's been out for, like, two years or whatever. But oh, the no, fact no, that... no, don't worry. If it's been on telly, you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> great, great. So, yeah, the fact that River Song was um, uh, Amy Pond's yeah. and Thingy's daughter... Um, like, there's, that's not... Uh, annoying because it's not predictable in any way and when you when you uncover that it's like oh it all makes sense now and now we've got a starting point for this character who we all care about because she's been here for like six episodes or whatever yeah um but it can be a little bit irritating if i'm trying to think of episodes that this is happening because i remember feeling this way but i don't remember when it's happened but when they introduce an item and they're like oh yeah this item is uh, very good at doing so and so, and then they use it for its yeah. original purpose, and then you're like, okay, that's gonna. There's no way that's not gonna come back later on and solve the problem. Chekhov's gun. Is that what it's called? Right. Well, that's what it's that's what it's called in literary terms. It's called a Chekhov's gun. You introduce something in the first act in order to use it in the third. Mm. I mean, that, but, yeah, that would be the problem. But I can't think of any instances. So that might be. I might be thinking of just like I probably am thinking of Russell T Davis episodes. Uh, you may be. Ones, but well, I, Stephen, mm. what Stephen Moffat does is instead of introducing it in the first act because he wants to use it in the third, he introduces it in an entirely different story. Exactly. Yeah. Which is which is better. Yeah, it's a more interesting way of doing it. I suppose the thing is, once you've seen him do that a dozen times, then you start to say, "Oh God, is he doing that again?" But I'd still rather he do that than just introduce it at the start of the same story, or worse yet, not bother introducing it and actually have it as a Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's just because it's just because it's the same. It's the same writer. It's impossible not to pick up on these little niches that they have. And maybe it's just yeah. because they're repetitive. Is that why? Is is why I'm getting irritated with them? They're not bad in, uh, inherently. So it's just um... no. It's just repetitive in some yeah. ways, I guess. But he's he's a very good writer. I didn't like the Weeping Angel ones. The uh, the when Matt they did Smith them. ones. No, because yeah, probably the Matt Smith ones. I'm trying to remember the order of what happened because they they were really ominous and really really terrifying. But the reason they were so terrifying for me was because you like for the first episode you're like, wait a minute, we don't have the doc. The doctor got yeah, stuck yeah. with this stuff, so they must be you know horrible, and um, you know. They don't. They're not as much of a. I mean, they're still definitely as much of a threat, but they were so much more terrifying when you're watching it through the through the perspective of a character who knows that the Doctor and Martha have already failed, and it's like, okay, this is. Oh very yeah, bad. that's very true. Very true. Um, and the other the other thing about the Weeping Angels is they were a they were a single story idea. The idea itself doesn't make any sense that they send you back in time and feed off the energy that you would have had if you'd have been living now instead of living then yeah, doesn't make any uh, doesn't make any sense and nor does the idea that they can only move if nobody's looking at them that doesn't make any sense either it's got this weird sort of fairy tale logic yeah this just in, just works in that one episode <laughs> you can't really use it anywhere else can't bring it back because it's kind of completely self 
self-enclosed in that episode. Yeah. So when you do bring them back, you kind of have to change them a little bit in order to make them relevant to a different story. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And it's like the... With the when they did the the new episode with them, where they had, uh, they were like digging somewhere or something, and uh, I can't remember who it is. Is it um, Amy? Is this goes, the? She goes into a van and it gets locked, and they're like, "Oh, the image yeah, of yeah. an angel becomes an angel." It's like you yeah, know that. Is... I was going to say about Moffat is that his writing, while definitely more uh, science uh, science um, fiction based than. You know, more, days, like, yeah. yeah, it's also a lot more like just fantastic, just plain fantastical. So not necessarily yeah. science fiction. Like sort of the fact that it's science fiction allows for more fairy tale aspects rather than actual futuristic yeah. spaceship elements. He treads this really weird line between complete science fiction and complete fantasy, where yeah. he kind of weirdly seems to marry the two things together. Um, I'm trying to think of. I think the first instance I came across that was there was a David Tennant werewolf episode, which I was very disappointed with, which was scary, but then the explanation for it, I don't even remember it. Um, that was an early Russell T. Davis one, yeah. yeah that was, um, it was a different one. But that just as a fantasy thing, that was uh, very odd to me, because it's like, but this you can't use the fact that this is Doctor Who and scientific and time travel, i.e. anything's possible to say, now we're just going to tell a story about werewolves. You need to have a good reason. So I just, you know, I didn't sort yeah, of jarred yeah. me a bit but I mean with Moffat it seems to be a lot more like well executed With the, even with the angels thing it's sufficiently scary which is good enough for me I think the problem I had with it was the fact that it's they they change the rules to yeah, suit yeah. the circumstance rather than keeping the rules the same and having you know the doctor building sells. the circumstance around the rules yeah they exactly. change the rules yes that's like with the oh, oh, in a error yeah it's such a shame as well because I really like the Weeping Angels yeah. first episode. Like, but with the oh no, suddenly it's locked, and also that thing on the screen that you're looking at is going to turn into an angel if you don't solve this problem. It's like mm, that's yeah. gonna bring up inconveniences and plot holes later on, and then it did because there was the episode which I only half watched with uh, River Song and the Angels in New York. Um, oh yeah, Amy, Amy and Rory's last episode. Yeah, which I just remember. A lot of people complaining about. I don't know that it was actually that bad. I think there were a lot of plot holes in it. Like, surely there are images of the of the Statue of Liberty everywhere. Also, how are they standing on the edge uh, on this ledge, looking at each other with the Statue of Liberty just behind them? Surely it would have moved by now. It's just small things. But then, it, yeah, yeah, it's, so, it's just it's just because it was I, it was supposed to be an isolated story when he wrote it. He was a guest writer at that point. Yeah. No, no, no. This is one. No, when he yeah, yes, when he wrote the Angel. very first one, yeah, he was a guest writer. Guest yeah. writer. So it was like a really isolated and, and brilliant story because it was it was so like uh, entirely self-contained. Yeah, and then after bringing it back, I think it was because like it was sort of his signature Doctor Who thing there, or one of his his most yeah, well-known yeah. uh, villains. So he just brought it back a lot, and I think oh, just made such like small mistakes. Well, they also these... proved to be incredibly popular, and uh, when something Were proves they? that. Yeah, they won a uh, they won a poll in the Radio Times the oh, year wow. after their first story, where people said they were, you know, the readers of the Radio Times on their website gave voted them their favourite monster way above the Daleks. Wow, which was just well, they, ridiculous, really. But that's, that's how popular they were at the time. Yeah, that's slightly different though. I understand them being the favourite monster at the time because they were. Yeah, yeah. To me, if you ask me, what was my 
what was the or most scary? What was your favorite monster at the time when those episodes had just come out? It would have been um, the Weeping Angels, all the Daleks, all the Cybermen, and the only reason it would have been the Daleks and the Cybermen is because there were so many episodes before that. The Weeping yeah. Angels haven't come up would be because they're the most um, recurring monster other than them at the time, and as a monster, they're very good and very scary, even though the episodes weren't that great in my opinion. <laughs> Well, yeah, actually, might be worth going back to revisit those episodes, because if you can sort of turn your mind off to a few of the problems, yeah, they're probably... actually really well made, and really, um, there's some really good dialogue and plot points in there. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I'm definitely influenced by other people saying, like, yeah, I didn't like that, and I need to go back and watch them properly with, like, a with a fresh, more objective point of view. I'd go through all of Matt Smith, actually. Well, I'm going to ask you now about Matt Smith, about, yeah. and about maybe... Because I'll give you a, I'll give you my example, and then because my example took place in sort of late seventies, early eighties, and yours is taking place now, and I wonder if actually the two examples are the same thing. But when I was, gosh, I don't know, nine or ten, I was when I started to become aware of the fact that Doctor Who was a television program and sometimes the acting wasn't very good and sometimes the sets weren't very good <laughs> and sometimes the cameras sort of, you know, yeah. didn't the, the editing didn't cut at the right time, all this kind of thing. About nine or ten, I sort of became hyper aware that Doctor Who was a television program and over the sort of next two years after that, I started to fall out of love with it a bit. Oh. By the time I was about 13 or 14, I was actually struggling to watch it. Now, that could be because those stories aren't actually as good as the ones that were on when I was five, six and seven and when I was first getting into it. But by the same token, I think a huge amount of that is because of how old I was and because you just have different interests. So when it comes to Matt Smith and Stephen Moffat and you said about an hour ago that you had a bit of a falling out with the programme at that time... (laughs) Yeah. How much of that is down to Matt Smith and Stephen Moffat, and how much do you think is it down to your age? That's a that's a really good point. I think actually, having heard you say that you also fell out of it around the age, it's probably the same sort of thing. I think it's just that around that age, you get more used to the idea that actually, hang on, this is a TV show. Yeah, it's like a sort of weird like parental relationship where like they're not perfect, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yes, exactly. Actually, yeah, and then yeah. those flaws start sticking out a bit. That's very odd, but I mean. Yeah, I completely agree with you, actually. Um, I think if I went back and revisited some of the episodes that I say I di- uh, didn't like, I-, I mean, I loved the initial Matt Smith one, and I think I just loved the whole first season, even though I can't remember half of it. If you told me the episodes, I would, but I just off the top of my head <laughs> yeah, can't yeah. remember them. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, towards the end of it, I definitely just lost interest. And I remember by the end of uh, Amy Pond and Rory's... Arc. Well, that was the angel one, yeah, yeah. That was the. I was just like, I didn't care, and that might just be because you know it was that it was that point in my life where I'm like, yeah, it's a TV show, and I'm more likely to focus on the flaws because um, those are the things that are emerging to me, like as 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 me being aware of. Well, here's another little theory to throw in while we're talking about it is, and going back to something else we were saying about an hour ago, Doctor Who being for children. And, I, and okay. you know, I, my contention was it's for children and it includes other people. Yeah. So when you're... So say the perfect age to watch Doctor Who is eight. So when you're six, Doctor Who is like an aspirational thing where it's actually playing slightly above you. 
But when you're 12, it's playing four years below you. So by the time you're 12, actually, you're looking at Doctor Who. And even if you're not doing it consciously, subconsciously, you're thinking, that's kind of kid stuff. Yeah. But that might only last a year. I think it only lasted two or three years with me. And then I just sort of went, oh, to hell with it. It's Doctor Who. I went <laughs> back to it. But you know what I mean? There will be a period where you sort of pass beyond the threshold of where it's actually being aimed. And you're thinking, even if subconsciously, like I say, this is below me. And then perhaps a couple of years again after that, you'll get to the point where you say, well, actually, I don't care if it's not actually aimed specifically at me. If I still enjoy it, I still enjoy it. So be it. Do you think there's some of that in sort of your relationship with the series? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much of it is to do with the age. Like the whole the whole thing we were saying about uh, as you grow up, you get more aware of the, um, the well, well, this is Yeah, sorry, just to, the thing I meant to say but didn't was because Doctor Who doesn't change. It doesn't grow up with its audience. Yeah, no, absolutely. It stays, you know, generally speaking. The Peter Capaldi ones are perhaps slightly more adult than the Matt Smith ones were, but you know what I mean. Yeah, so I don't know if it's an age thing. I mean, it will be if you're... I think it's a, I think it's more of a memory thing. So if if I started watching it now for the first time, I would have a more mature um, yeah point of view of, of watching it. But I I think I'd still watch it to the same degree as when I started watching it uh, when I was a lot younger. And then I'd probably fall out of it later later on, uh, you know, when I'm around nineteen or something, and then get back into it again. And I think that's just because the way that you remember Doctor Who is when you watch it when for the first time. Uh, you watch it and it's all new to you. So it's all completely like this is, uh, you know, sort of you're investigating into yeah, what the yeah. show is about with the, with the characters. And that's, that's a brilliant uh, way to get into it, which is why I think it works so well for children, um, getting into it. And that might just be because I grew up with, surrounded by, uh, people yeah. my age who were into it. But, um, but also as a child, investigating is a big thing in your life because you're investigating absolutely everything when you're a kid, aren't yeah. you? Absolutely. And I mean, the show is at its core about exploration and discovery. And that's the most appealing thing I can think of for a, for a, a young child wanting to watch a TV show. It's just there's space and all the time go out and, you know, explore. And that's, yeah. wow. Okay, definitely. But um, I think the reason I fell out of it is just because after watching all of that as a child and enjoying all of it, you get it becomes more sort of the stuff that's left over in your memory is, is the, you're only going to remember the best stuff. I think you yeah. remember because the thing, the bad things about Doctor Who aren't like bad things. Like that was a really bad scene or that was a really bad uh, bit of acting that never happens. The, the worst part about Doctor Who is sometimes it's a little boring and you don't remember things that are boring because you know, why would you? So yeah. as you grow up, uh, you get more and more in touch with the, for parts that may be boring. So you're comparing that to your memory of all of that good stuff, because that's all that you remember. And then looking at what you've got and there's, then you find there's more, a lot more of it is a bit more uh, boring or whatever. And then you'll be like, well, I'm falling out of it now. So I think it's just a memory thing. And then as you get older, you're like, actually, you know, having rewatched those episodes, they were all like that. And I still enjoyed them. And thinking back on it, I still do enjoy a lot of them. So, you know, and then you just keep watching it. I think it's just because, you you know, you compare the most yeah, salient parts of your enjoyment, which are the, the best parts, to while you're watching it. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes yeah. it's, it, you know, if you compare every episode to your favourite episode, you're always going to be disappointed sort of thing. Because in spite of the fact that, you know, Doctor Who's the series where you can do new things and different things all the time, yeah. you know, 
at its essence, it's still doing the same things, even though it's doing them with new people and in different places. So, you know, if you if your first year of Doctor Who is 13 episodes, that's 13 episodes, and you can enjoy all the best bits out of those 13. But 10 years down the line, if you've seen 113 episodes, that's a whole lot more of the same thing for you to think, well, okay, maybe those 13 episodes would have been more exciting to me because all the other things that got repeated across the rest of those 113 episodes didn't get repeated across those 13. I didn't explain that very well, but I don't know <laughs> if you got my point. I think I sort of get what you're saying. Are you saying yeah. that as, as you get introduced to more and more episodes, you start judging them differently just because there are a lot more of them? So when you've got that pure, like, yeah, yeah, 13 yeah. of them, you, you look at them completely differently to after you've seen, you know, 100 because by more. The time, yeah, because by the time you've seen 10 years' worth of Doctor Who, you've seen 10 years' worth of Doctor Who. You've seen the Doctor <laughs> yeah. doing the same thing for 10 years. Whereas if you've only ever seen him do it once, then it's unique to that once. Definitely. And yeah. it's sort of... you. Every time a new Doctor um, appears or people start talking about, uh, you know, there's a new... He's regenerating soon. They're going to be a new Doctor. It's always everyone's expecting something new to happen. And I think that's just because uh, intrinsically the show's about exploration and you always have to go somewhere new because, you know, yeah, yeah. you can't explore somewhere you've already been. Um, I mean, you can explore the same uh, characters and themes and stuff, but it has to be new places and ideas and concepts and stuff. And I think that's just, that's why it's easier to get disappointed with it as you go on because you start realising that a lot of the stuff is very similar. You know, but it treads a really fine line between having to do the same things in order to be the same programme, but having the wherewithal to be able to change things up to keep itself fresh. And yeah, bringing in a new actor is not giving you a new character, but what it's giving you is a new person's perspective on that character. Oh yeah, definitely. It's, yeah. Like, it's like just opening up a, a different set of personalities. You still have to write to appeal to those personalities. It's like so having it's a nice. different set of cutlery. It feels slightly <laughs> different in your hand, but yeah. it's still a knife and a fork. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I still enjoy it, and I'm still going to keep watching it, um, but it's just sort of... Um, I don't think I'm going to look back on a lot of episodes as fondly as I would if I'd watched them... When you were five. Yeah, later on. Yeah, yeah. Or if it, was the, if it was the first time watching them. I, sometimes I wonder that, like, if that's just a nostalgia thing. If, I, if I'd started with Matt Smith and then watch David Tennant, and then Christopher Elkson, would I still prefer Christopher Elkson, then David Tennant, then, you know, that sort or of thing. Or the other way around. Could easily have been the other yeah, way around, yeah. perhaps. Well, this is something I'm going to have to do in five years. I'm going to have to get somebody <laughs> on who started with Matt Smith, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. I mean, my, you could probably get one of my brothers on at some point, because they basically, the youngest one basically started with uh, end of David Tennant and beginning of Matt Smith. So. Oh, well, in five years' time, I'll be coming for one of your brothers then. I'll have him <laughs> on the podcast instead. Brilliant. <laughs> Meantime, I definitely think you're worth getting back for the uh, Deus Ex Machina episode. Yeah. Sometime I mean, in the new year. I'll be in <laughs> touch about that, definitely. Definitely, that'd be good. Um, I mean, I don't know. A lot of the Deus Ex Machina stuff is just because... Sometimes well, it's, writing... a, it's a conversation that's worth getting into in depth at some yeah, point yeah. in the future because I think there's a there's a big difference between what technically constitutes a Deus Ex Machina, yeah, and what and and something that's actually a Deus Ex Machina because sometimes you fulfilled the criteria, the technical criteria, but in sort of character logic terms and 
and the logic of the ongoing story throughout across the series and stuff i think there are different ways of looking at it and i think it's worth getting into you know this kind of thing in really great depth yeah in an episode next year sometime <laughs> all right i mean yeah Meanwhile, a couple more questions before we go, because we've pretty much run out of time now. But oh, wow. 50th anniversary, uh, Day of the Doctor and all the other stuff that was on at the 50th anniversary. I can imagine your dad was terribly excited. But if <laughs> you kind of, but if you'd kind of fallen out of love with the program a bit by then, how were you taken up with the 50th? Did, did you, did you get to feel a bit of that excitement or not? Um, I'm trying to remember what happened. I definitely was like, oh my god, 50 years of Doctor Who. And I can't, I can't relate to that as well as my dad can because he's actually, you know, been around for all 50 years or whatever. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but he won't I, enjoy the fact that you'd said that. <laughs> shh, don't, shh, don't tell. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I still, I still relate to it a lot because I've been with it for, um, you know, most all of your my life, life, basically. Yeah. yeah. All your, your sort of, as as long as you could remember, I expect, yeah, yeah. It sort of confused me, though, because there was a lot of uh, introductions or references to stuff that I didn't really um, get. But the two main uh, Doctors in it was, you know, David Tennant one, David Tennant's one and Matt Smith's one. So I was like, actually, this could be, this could be pretty good, because they're the ones that I'm most familiar with. Yeah. So it was fine. I'm just trying to remember uh, what happened in it. Well, it's the, they sort of undid the time war. Yeah, that was it. Right, they undid the time war. Well, they undid the end of the time war, rather, but that that was kind of basically the gist of it. I'm still the confused, do- though. What did they change? What happened? Well, Christopher Eccleston's Doctor had, had been the Doctor who had destroyed Gallifrey and the Time Lords and the Daleks as the final act of the time war. And yeah. then when they got to the end of the 50th anniversary special... They retconned that so that actually he didn't destroy it. He took the Time Lords out of time and allowed the Daleks to destroy themselves. So he was innocent of this great war crime that he'd always thought he was guilty of. But by the same token, the Doctor doesn't remember that. So even though that Doctor's now no longer guilty of that war crime, he still thinks he is. So he still has the guilt of it hanging over his head. What? But how can he remember it if you... Uh, okay. <laughs> no, he doesn't remember I... it. When you have multi-doctor stories, this is a thing from the past, because yeah. there have been some in the past. At the end of multi-doctor stories, only the most recent doctor, the current doctor, remembers what happens, right. and all the other doctors forget. Because otherwise they'd just say, oh, well, this is the bit where you press that button, and the story would be over and done with in two minutes. Got it. Okay. Um... <laughs> I mean, it was a good episode. I just... And it was definitely all that, um, it lived up to everything that I was expecting it to, because it was very well filmed, and, and I just remember enjoying it, a, like, a ton when I was watching it. I was like, this is, right. this is so cool. But thinking back on it now, I don't remember, I don't, I don't feel like it had much of an, an impact. You need to rewatch it. Yeah, definitely. I yeah. I think um, it sounds like you need to go back and do a few of the maps. I de- absolutely, I need to watch way more of them. It's, I just got... You know, I just got bored of them. There was this. I know that's fine. That's uh, what happens to us all. I think. I think it was the the stuff with Rory that confused me, and I was like trying to keep updates on what was going on with his character because he died. He died, and that was really sad. And then he got erased from time, and that was like a, a really touching and miserable scene. And then he br- he got brought back as a 
Guy with well, the Doctor actor, rebooted time. The Doctor rebooted time. Yeah, but I and I get that. I know, I know, of, I know. <laughs> it sort of cancels out the whole. Oh, I was really sad that he's gone because he's not gone. I say that. Do you know what I always say in those situations? Is that at the moment when that character goes, then you have the sadness, and whether it gets changed or not later, for those five weeks or whatever before it got changed, that emotion was real. That's true. It just like retrospectively, it doesn't feel like as much of a threat or that it has any significance. So I'll watch it again later, and, and I mean, I'm still going to enjoy the episodes when I watch them again yeah, yeah. because there's a lot of stuff that I know I missed. But I'm just going to be like, well, he's not. It doesn't matter though that he's getting. Well, you know, time. but that's the thing of the sort of eight million people who watch Doctor Who, seven point nine of those million only ever watch it the once. Yeah. So those emotions will always have been real, even that's though true. that character came back. Yeah. It's only the other sort of. One percent who are going to rewatch Doctor Who, who are going to the next time they watch that episode will say, "Well, he's not really dead; he comes back." Yeah, that's just a tiny fraction of the audience, really. Yeah, and I mean that's that's again that's just me nitpicking because you can say that's yeah. true for any single any that's true for any bit of media where a character dies and then is later brought back. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. just watch it again and be like, "Well, he's coming back, so I don't need to worry about that." But yeah, you're right. At the time, it was very it was very very sad because they just immediately forgot about it. it was, a great scene. Yes, that was horrible, wasn't it? Yeah. I have to watch that one again. Right, final question before I let you go, because we've gone over <laughs> we've gone over time now, really. Um not that it really matters. But, <laughs> okay. Cut but final oh. question before you go then. Does your dad not bully you into watching lots of old classic series Doctor Who then? Because no. it doesn't sound like he does. He's got he's gonna start. He keeps asking me to and telling me you should watch these ones, and we keep talking about the Something Sons episodes. The mm, I can't remember what it is about. It's a re- one of his like favorite Doctor Who. Um, uh, not really series, like um, stories. Stories, stories yeah. yeah. Um, called the Something Sons. I can't remember what it was. Um, oh, the not Sons. Um, oh, I can't think what it might be. It's not the caves of Androzani. No, no. It's it's. it's It'd be a black and white one, wouldn't it? It's something of the suns, maybe. I don't know. I'll have to ask him. <laughs> you definitely have to ask him because now I am the, intrigued. The, the Sunmakers, maybe. Oh, the Sunmakers, maybe. Yeah, that's a Tom Baker one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tom Baker. Pro- that's probably it. I think his favorite is Tom Baker, and I really like Tom Baker too, but. Yeah, again, I don't know. Yeah, I don't don't know get him to start you with the Sunmakers, for God's sake. Don't start with that one. No, don't get him to play you that one. Jesus. <laughs> is it not a good one, or is it? It's, it's is okay. It it's okay. It's quite funny, but it's yeah, yeah. very, very cheap. It's one of the cheapest Doctor Who's. It's really, it's one of those ones that just looks really shoddy. Oh, I thought It's one quite of the... good. It's got some good characters. That's fine. I don't know. <laughs> um,. Oh, right. So I was saying about um, Matt Smith. I think a lot of the stuff to do with whether or not I like the series is, is the, uh, the not the companions, but the dynamic between the Doctor and the companions. And I didn't like the dynamic with the Doctor and Amy. And then the same dynamic, basically, with the Doctor and Clara, which is both quirky. I really like Peter Capaldi and Clara because Capaldi is like grumpy and... and and really smart yeah, and stuff. And yeah. Clara's like sort of the morale, the morality um, of the group. And also, you know, she's she's allowed to be quirky because the other one's not also quirky and it doesn't... I see what you're saying. It's it. like, that, yeah, when you know. Matt Smith and Amy Pond and Rory were in the TARDIS, it was a bit Scooby Gang. 
Yeah, basically. I mean, that was that was all right because Rory was like the sort of temperament; he was the really awkward one. But um, mm. a lot of the time, it was just um, humor two people value. very similar. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't again, but it's not again... bad. It's just I got tired of that dynamic after they repeated it with Clara. I, I don't know if I watch it again, I'll probably be like, actually, this is fine. I don't care. But I, I way prefer the dynamic between. Um, Peter Capaldi and Peter Capaldi Jenna Coleman, and Clara, yeah, or Chris yeah, Rex, yeah. Chris Rexon and uh, Rose. I don't yes. really know what Rose's dynamic was. She was just sort of the the protagonist. She was kind of enthusiastic, wasn't she? Sort of, but I mean, Donna was more enthusiastic. I can't really assign a personality. Maybe, yeah, to her. yeah, yeah. Martha was good because she was a, she was like a completely different. She wasn't. Um, I don't really know how to put it, but she was a lot more um, not brooding but like a sort of sadder character because she knew that like she, the doctor didn't care about her at all and she was just along for the ride sort of thing she perhaps had more perspective on things yeah martha she, she sort of she sort of had a more oversight about what was going on and although yeah. she was in love with the doctor and he wouldn't love her back and she knew that couldn't be helped she kind of had because of that maybe she kind of had over more oversight more perspective on whatever else was going on around them yeah, she was t- she was just a way more is- isolated character, I think, and that's yeah part of why it was really. Was she in the one with the um one of my favorite episodes, the highway one with all the s- small cars? Um, yeah, that's Martha. Yeah, I love that one. I love that episode. That's so good. Yeah, we just rewatched that recently actually, with, um, for the podcast with the face of Bo. That's right. Face oh, of Bo. Yeah, so Russell T. Dies. Russell T. Davis did do. An overarching there is a character plotline thing. He did. Oh, he, with he Jack did. Harkinson, didn't oh, he? yeah. Oh, this is what I think. Actually, if you sit and watch the whole of the first series, the Christopher Eccleston one from start to finish, I yeah. think the story arc across that series is very much like the ones that Stephen Moffat does, in that there are things going on to do with the locations and the people, as well as just the monsters and the Doctor. There's all sorts of things tied into that first series. Yeah. That Ross T. Davis doesn't really doesn't really do again after that. Oh, it's a shame. I, I, I really like that one. I, I just need to watch all of it again. Um, well, that's your project now. Watch <laughs> it's it, my project. Watch, watch the last 11 years from start to finish. <laughs> I'll give you till September 19th when it comes back. Someone came up with um, a measurement of how long it would take to watch uh, like all episodes of lots of TV um, things and Doctor Who takes like three months or something. Like, if you watch all of them consecutively, like, the number of hours comes up to, like, I don't even know. It must be more than three months. It must be, like, a year. I don't know. God, yeah. <laughs> it's huge, though. It's a huge Quite a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll definitely Crazy do that, stuff. Though. Right, Cass. Thanks for that. <laughs> thanks for joining me and chatting about all this stuff. That's okay. That was great. <laughs> it's been tremendous fun. And I think, well, hopefully, this will make a really interesting listen for our listeners Seen as, you know, for once, I've got somebody who's slightly younger than 45 on the programme. <laughs> yeah, I've just definitely. got a really vague and inconsistent opinion on the episodes, though, it seems. To... No, no, no. That's... <laughs> oh, fine. not at all. But, hey, but that is, you know, that's why I've had you on to talk about it. So we Woo. can sort of get into this kind of thing. Yeah. But but until the, until you come back next year, which I think is definitely going to happen now. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think what our episode is next week. I can't remember. So, oh, next week, a bit of a treat for our listeners. We're going to review Canine and Company. Ever heard of Canine and Company? Uh, no. It's... 
Well, I ask your dad I who, to tell you about it. I know who K9 is. He's the weird dog that uh, Sarah Jane yeah. has. And he's... Well, back in the early 1980s, they tried to do a spin-off for him. Oh, right. Wow. <laughs> okay. How did that show? It didn't go very well. <laughs> and there's a special treat next was, week. I'm going to force my regular podcasters to listen to it, to watch it rather, and then talk about it for an hour. Brilliant. Was it just yeah. him then? Was it just him as the protagonist? Or was he... No, was... Sarah Jane Smith was in it. Right, but was he was he the main character, or was Sarah Jane Smith? Well, the main she character? was the main character, and he was a secondary character. Right, even okay. though neither of those two were in Doctor Who at the same time, back when they'd been in Doctor Who. Weird. Yes, it made as little sense as that. <laughs> Until then, then I was Jr. I was Cass, and we'll speak again soon. Oh.